Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. What a prayer it is to think Christ be magnified in me, in you. Let me invite you, if you brought a copy of the Scriptures with you, open with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, we're going to begin in verse 4 in just a few moments. And uh, that really is kind of the contemplation of my heart this morning. What does it mean and what does it take for Christ to be magnified in us? When is Christ magnified in us? How do we desire that and pursue Christ being magnified in and through us? Is it only in certain seasons or in certain circumstances? Is it only when we're up or is it also when we're experiencing difficulty? This morning we got notified of another death in connection to a church member several last week that we experienced medical issues cancer surgeries all taking place around us this past week uh, an EF3 tornado comes through our community and it's just hard sometimes life's hard how is Christ to be magnified in our lives And is there a connection to his being magnified? Is it somehow connected to the difficulties that we go through? I think that's a question that we have to answer this morning. And really the writer of Hebrews gives us an answer to Charles Spurgeon in a sermon that he entitled, A Happy Christian, makes this statement. He says, the worldling, that is those of the world, a non-Christian, the worldling, blesses God while he gives him plenty. But the Christian blesses him when he smites him. He believes him to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him, looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. End quote. That Statement that single statement out of there points to and reminds us of the fact that God is big and we're small. That God's at work in ways that we don't easily perceive, that we can't often understand, and oftentimes we can't find joy in the midst of the circumstances around us. But if we could anchor our trust in the one who wisely and lovingly rules and reigns, then I would argue we can find strength and joy to press us forward in the task. Now, if you've walked around on the planet for more than just a few minutes, you realize that life's hard. That's not news to us. We face things in life that are at times overwhelming. But how we view such things can have an outsized influence on how we perform. If our focus is on that difficulty, 
We can come to draw in and only see this narrow little sliver of our experience. But if perhaps we could see beyond that to a God who rules and reigns, who's sovereign over all of these things and believe that he somehow has a purpose for them. Like he works all things together for good to those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. If we believe that, then perhaps we can find a different way for Christ to be magnified in us. Maybe you've gone through the death of someone close recently. Maybe you've been disappointed in someone's actions, a child or a friend or a confidant, a spouse, uh, someone who just disappointed you. You knew they weren't living up to acting according to potential. Maybe right now you're in the battle of your life in a fight for holiness, looking for wholeness and happiness, and it seems like it's unattainable. Or maybe... You've been in the battle and now you find yourself in that lull, somehow out of the immediate conflict, but you can see the next one on the horizon. And you're trying to figure out how to muster up the courage to just press forward and walk toward it. If that's true, then I pray that today's for you. This next section of the letter picks up on the momentum where we left off in Hebrews 12. It, uh, you can almost still see the imagery of life's arena with Jesus, King Jesus reigning and looking on. Where the crowd is cheering us on. Where we now hear the charge, trust the process, trust the training ground of God and finish this thing. That's what I want you to see with me. We're in Hebrews 12. We're going to begin in verse 4 and make our way through verse 17. Can I invite you, if you're able, stand with me in honor of the Word of God. If you're joining us from somewhere else, like so many right now who are on vacation, we're grateful that you've tuned in, that you're a part of this. I hope you'll follow along with us. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. Hebrews 12 and verse 4. <clears throat> the writer writes and says, You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he, re he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have a earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment, seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it. 
that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Would you pause there and pray with me? Father, even in these moments, would you teach and instruct us and I pray our confidence in your discipline, the grace of your discipline would be evident to us and that our response to it would be Christ be magnified in me. That's our heart's desire in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You be seated. Thank you for standing. If you'd like to follow along, there is an outline. And can I, can I just encourage you, you may say, man, I'm not really a note taker, Chris. Here's what I, I know. I, I want to be careful how I say this because I want my words to matter. I don't know of any message that God's spoken more clearly to my heart that I need more than what I'm going to share with you today. And I may not need it in this moment. But if I'm a child of God, I will need it. So it may be of value to you to jot down some of these thoughts. I want to walk you through three big ideas or three truths in this section in a message simply entitled, The Grace of Discipline. The Grace of Discipline. If you maybe didn't bring something to write with, you can uh, get the outline on the app or you could text notes to that number they send you and all of that. But I want you to catch these three big ideas. First thing I want you to notice with me, hey, it's real simple. I want you to catch this. You've got more in the tank you've got more in the tank you have more in the tank when you think you're at the end the writer of Hebrews tells us there's still more to give there's more to draw from you're not you've not exhausted it yet you've got more in the tank and then he draws the connection by showing us and reminding us of the example of Jesus. Now, to catch the context of it, we begin in verse 4, but back up to verse 3 and notice with me. Here's what he says in verse 3. It's where we left off the last time we were in Hebrews. He says, for consider, think deeply about, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you'll not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. You've not yet exhausted it. You've not yet gotten there. You've got more in the tank. We ended last time with the example of Jesus who pressed into the Father and faithfully finished His course. Jesus' life, His ministry, His actions, His intercession, His sacrifice, it was not an easy existence. It was difficult. You see pictures of this all throughout his ministry, none more clearly than his prayer in Gethsemane. If you're taking notes, jot down Mark 14, verse 36, where Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, after the Last Supper, after singing with his disciples, after crossing over the Kidron Brook into the Garden of Gethsemane, after asking his disciples to pray, Goes a little further and cries out to his father and he was saying, Abba, Daddy, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. 
Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Hear the agony? If there's any way, take this away from me. It's too much. Nevertheless, don't let me quit. Not what I will, what you will. Make your will come to pass, not my feelings, not my assessment, not my sense of circumstance, but your desire. This demonstrated faithfulness was rooted in a firm resolve to yield to the plan and purpose of the Heavenly Father. This is evident in Jesus' life all throughout. Paul speaks of it and says this attitude um, it exemplifies Jesus' approach to everything in life. He writes it to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, verses 5 and following. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have this attitude, this mindset, this reliance on the plan and purpose, the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God. Trust him when it's hard. That's precisely what we see in Jesus. Now go back to verse 4, Hebrews 12, verse 4. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. You've got more in the tank. There's more for you. There's more in you. There's more ability. You've not yet gotten to the end of that. Now notice he talks about it by way of sin and you know, you and I, sometimes we think of sin, we think of it in its exaggerative manifestations. We think of it, oh, that's, that's adultery, that's idolatry. It is those things. It's murder, it is those things. But the writer of Hebrews has been dealing with sin in a way that's a little more subtle and maybe even baptized in our lives. It's the it's the sin of turning back. It's the sin of faithlessness. It's the sin of shrinking. It's the sin of stepping away. It's the sin of minimizing. It's the sin of a, of a shrinking back, turning around. Don't think of it only as these big sins, but the very theme of the letter has been a charge to not quietly resign or to retreat, but to resist and to press forward. The writer says... You've not yet been hung on a cross or died in battle. You've got more in the tank. Press on. Friend, there's often more in the tank than we think there is. I went back and watched this clip this week because the, the idea came to mind. I don't know where these thoughts come into my mind. Sometimes they're just weird. A movie from back in the 1900s. It's called Facing the Giants. Anyone? Yeah, it's a great movie. came out of Sherwood Church. It's a great movie. It's a football theme. And, you know, the closer we get to God's favorite sport, the more excited I am about it. And uh, we're getting closer to that season. And 
I went back and watched it. There's a, there's a scene in there. If you've seen the movie, you'll recall it. If not, you may look it up. You could just, here's what you could look up. Don't do it now because I'll hear your phones click over to YouTube. <laughs> but you could look up the death crawl sequence and uh here here it is so they're they're sitting there they've just had a tough practice the team sitting around the coaches talking about the game coming up on friday and and the kind of the 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 leader but yet subdued leader of the team brock says oh, i don't know if we can beat those guys man they're really strong and the coach it becomes one of those teaching moments and he's like Brock, we, we can do it. There's more for us to give. We've got more to give. He's like, they're much bigger than us. He's like, you've got more to give. And then they did this thing that's torturous. It's terrible. It's why I left sports. You, for some reason, it's, you grabbed another player and you put him on your back and then you got down on all fours and you just went from yard to yard to yard and you'd go 10 yards or 15 yards or 20 and he said, I believe you can go further. He said, I think you could go 30 yards. I think you could go 50. Maybe I could go 50. He said, just give me your best. Just your best, your best. And then he blindfolded him and he put the player on his back and he began to, to go in the first 10, 15, 20, 30 yards are doable. And he gets to 40 yards and he's getting weak and he's, he's, he's pressing forward and the coach says, just don't quit. Just give me your best. Just keep going. One more step. Just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. Just keep going. He said, I know I've got to be at the 50 man. He said, just keep going. Your very best. Your very best. Your very best. Your very best. 10 more yards. Your very best. Five more steps. Your very best. Three, two, one. And he collapses in the other end zone a hundred yards with a guy on his back and I think the most significant part wasn't necessarily Brock's heart but the blindfold that he often would look through and think I can't do it and the message you've got more in the tank you can do what you don't think you can do because God desires to do it in and through you, you've got more in the tank. Notice, secondly, there's promise in the process. There's promise in the process. Verses 5 to 11, all that's said there is kind of summarized in verse 11. Look at it with me. It says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness all discipline that word discipline it's the greek word pedia and you saw it all throughout this passage in fact it's used eight times in the verses that we read pedia and uh when we think of discipline sometimes i maybe you're different but i think when we think of discipline i think about when i'd bring home a bad report card and my dad would Say, son, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I thought, make it easy on yourself. <laughs> I mean, really, take a break. It's okay. And uh, I think about punishment, consequences for rebellion. Maybe you think of it that way. And, and it does include correcting rebellion. But it's more than that. It's actually the full program of training. It, it speaks of upbringing or instruction. And the writer challenges us. He says, when you look at life, 
See the big God who watches over all, who sees everything, who's purposeful in every way. And trust Him by faith. The Lord's discipline, yes. And all of this training regimen seems overwhelming and sorrowful in the moment. But it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Three truths I want you to notice with me about the Lord's training. Three testimonies. When we think about the Lord's training, the first thing the writer of Hebrews tells us is that it speaks to our relationship as sons. It says, if God is training us, then it's because He's adopted us. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the pedia of the Lord nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he paideas, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, part of the training includes correction. The very presence of correction is a testimony of our relationship to him as our father. He loves us as son. Who can claim to love a son and not paideas him? Not training. That's the whole argument that's there. By the way, he draws that from Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. The writer says, correction by God proves you're his sons and that he's your father. He reaffirms this, reasserts it in verse 8. Notice he says 12, verse 8. If you are without paideia, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Some would say, I wish God wouldn't discipline me. Hey, to withhold paideia to withhold training, to withhold discipline would testify, but it would be a different testimony. It would testify not to the grace of God or to the mercy of God. It would testify to the illegitimacy of our lives before God, that we are separated, that we're broken all from the Father's house, that we're distinct from, separated from the Father's care. Not only our relationship as sons, but Also testified in this is our response as students. Look at verses 9 and 10. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to paideia us. And we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they paideia us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. So that we may share in his holiness. The writer now moves from talking from from Scripture of, of, hey, the discipline proves you're related to Him. Now he moves toward this discipline, this training as by analogy with our earthly fathers. He says, you saw the discipline of your earthly fathers and you respected them for it. And they did it for a short time to teach you obedience and how to succeed in life. And because of that, you gave, you gave them respect. You, the idea there for respect, it communicates the word honor. You honored them for the difficult course that you walked through while they were teaching you to succeed and to walk in obedience. Verse 9 says, shall we not much rather be subject to our heavenly father? If our earthly father's earned our honor after what they did for a short time teaching us obedience how much more honor how much more 
respect, how much more obedience, how much more yieldedness, how much more trust does our heavenly Father command from us when He disciplines us? Implied in this idea is that you and I cannot achieve holiness apart from God's training, apart from His discipline. We can't get there from here. By the way, that's the gospel. We believe that. We would say, there's nothing in me that desires good in and of myself. I didn't initiate goodness. I didn't one day pull myself up by my own bootstraps, say, I need to get answers for my life where I feel like a wretch and I think I'll go find out. Is there someone somewhere else who can settle my debt and bring me in and make me more than I am? I didn't do that. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming He hunted me down. He hunts me down. He impresses on me. Here's how you go. Here's what I'm doing. And I don't always like it and I often don't understand it. But I'm so grateful it's there. Were it not, we'd be lost. We'd be left behind. We'd be stuck without. The idea here is that We can't get there apart from Him. That's not just an eschatological idea or an end times idea, but it speaks of our present tense character of living. It talks about how we live every day. I know some folks say, Jesus died for me and one day I'm going to be a saint and I'm going to live with Him in glory and go cloud rodeo and all the time and strum harps and all kinds of fun. It'll be great. That's maybe true in some degree. But he didn't create you just to get to heaven. He created you to live the abundant life today. And we do that with holiness and that's part of his training plan. Notice what Paul says about this present tense character. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 12. He says our proud confidence is this. The testimony of our conscience. Here it is. That in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. That's what Paul said. He said in God's discipline, in God's training program, in this thing God's doing in our lives, every single nanosecond of every finite day. Paul says it's our aim and our proud confidence to live in holiness, separated unto God. That word holiness, hagiotes, it's where hagias, that's where we get the word saint from, holy from. And uh, here's what he said. He said that it's to live in purity and innocence and set up Heartness to God every single day. Paul said, it's my boast, it's our claim that every day, our conscience testifying, we live separated to God. That's God's plan for you and I. Relationship as sons, our response as students, also the results of discipline. Know what he said here in verse 11? He said, all paideia, For the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I love how realistic it is here in Hebrews 12, the reminder, when you're going through it, man, it's 
overwhelming. When you're going through it, it is soul crushing. When you're going through it, it feels like it's going to destroy you. It's sorrowful at times. But it's joyful because it produces the fruit of the peace of righteousness. That's true in our experience. Whoever woke up on January the 1st and said, I get to go on a diet. Man, let's get rid of all the cookies and the cake and the pies. I can't wait to eat kale and celery. No one said that. If they did, lock them up. They've lost it. No one's ever said that about a diet. Now, later, they felt better. You get the garbage out and good in, and you're like, man, I actually feel like my body works again. And that's true. No no one, uh, rarely do you find someone who goes to the gym and says, man, I'm about to punish myself. It's going to hurt. I love it. We call those people masochists. They don't make sense. Yet you want to be able to walk around and lift stuff in your old age. Like after 50. I'm after 50, so I can say that. So you go in and you go, I hate this. It hurts so much. I hate it. Oh, it broke it. It doesn't move like it used to. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, but uh, after a period of time, it bears fruit. You don't have to love every moment of those moments if you're aiming for the fruit of peace of righteousness, whether it's a diet or physical activity or academic studies or devotion to God, the disciplines of the faith like prayer or sharing the gospel or cultivating flourishing in the world. You may say, I don't like those things. So what? You love the fruit of the peace of righteousness. And that's that's his point. That's where he's getting to. The world would say, oh, take care of yourself. Make your life easier. God says, take care of your training. And it'll actually yield what you were after looking for easier. You've got more in the tank. There's promise in the process. And number three, the charge. Stand up and step out. Stand up and step out. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet. So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. You've heard me tell you before that anytime in the Greek language you find imperatives or commands or actionable instructions, things to do, you have to take special note of them. There's several imperatives here and they fit into two big buckets. One of those is internal imperatives, the other is external imperatives. Notice the internal imperatives. He says to you, to us, by the way I'm going to translate this because it's in the second person plural I'm going to translate it to the New Chris translation. You've never read that before. Y'all, strengthen the hands and knees. Strengthen the hands and knees. Why? They were tired, man. You ever been there? 
you're at the end of it, you're like, good night. I got nothing left. Life is crushed in on you. You've been to one too many funerals, one too many doctor's visits. You've stayed up one too many nights waiting on a wayward child to come home. You've, you've gone through the diff- you've You've watched people you love and care about make terrible decisions. And you've, you're just crushed by it. You're... Your shoulders are slumped, your arms are hanging low, your knees are, they barely hold together. He says, stand up. Strengthen your hands. Strengthen your knees. You say, well, I can't do that. God's going to have to do it. Wait a minute. If God puts it in you to do it, Isn't that the same as God doing it? If you've still got some in the tank and you do it, didn't God just do it? Yes. Furthermore, if he tells you to stand up, don't say you can't do it. The Bible says that would be as a father exasperating his children, telling them to do something that they're physically impossible to do. It would be like my dad saying to me, why don't you dunk a basketball? I'd say I'm 5'8 and a half. Rounded up, it's 5'9", solid. But I still can't dunk a basketball, except on that little tykes goal where I can live out all my Michael Jordan dreams. Just, I can't do that. What if he said, I'll love you as soon as you dunk a basketball. I'll commit this to you. I'll trust you as soon as you dunk. I can't do that. How could you tell me to do something that you know I can't do? The fact that God tells us to stand up, strengthen the hands, strengthen the knees, means it is possible. It is within you. You do have the ability because you still have some in the tank. He says, it's up to you. Stand up. Go from slumped shoulders, a picture is, to squared shoulders. And then he, the second imperative, he says, y'all make straight paths. There's another way of saying that. Move with resolve. Don't meander. Focus like a laser on what has to be done and on why you're doing it. You say, well, what's he talking about? Man, I get this. You may not get this. Just bless my heart. Sometimes I'll have tough stuff to do. How about you? On your list, is there something tough and as you look at it out there looming, you, you think, oh, but I, this needs to be done too. And then there's this, and then, then there's this, and oh, I spent all my time doing this. I'd be meandering over here with sideways energy, way over here into the shadowy places, apparently, that Lion King said I shouldn't go. But anyway, you're way over here, way out of the way, using all your sideways energy, and you're not getting focused. He said, get over that. Make a straight path. Go straight to where you're supposed to be. Go straight to what you're called to do. Don't get distracted by this stuff. Don't be delayed or detoured by all of this sideways stuff. Focus like a laser. Why? Because if you really are exhausted from pouring everything you have out, you don't have the energy to spare to be throwing it off left and right and around. You don't have it. If you're going to succeed, you have to put every 
ounce of energy into making forward progress toward what you were called to do, what you were created for, what you've been purposed to do. Why he told you to stand up and step out. Focused like a laser. Well, that's what I'm trying to do, Chris. Is it? See, I think this is such a huge deal that it's made the enemy's greatest tool for us. The one where he seeks to get us. Not a tool of outright frontal aggression, but the tool of distraction. Let me get your eyes off of what's most important. Let me get you thinking about these secondary, tertiary, these other weird things going on. You say, well, I'm not subject to distraction, Chris. I'm laser focused. Really? Grab your device, flip it over to the screen time, and tell me just how many hours a day you spend chasing some doctored picture or some link of reels on Instagram. You say, well, so those are important. To the influencer that made them, I'm not against that kind of thing, that kind of recreation or whatever, but don't tell me that's the same as I'm laser focused because you know it's not. Pour your energy there if you want to, but don't say I'm tired and I can't do other more important things. Get laser focus. That's what he says. Y'all strengthen hands and knees. Y'all make straight paths. Those are internal. Then there's the external. Look at verse 14. He says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now the idea of pursue is not incidental but intentional. It's not following after or moving in a direction and go, hey, look, there's what I was after right in front of me. Wow. No, it's, it's like a predator moving in on his prey in the open savanna. And as the antelope cuts left, the lioness cuts left and cuts right and cuts right, it's right on their heels. It's seeking to overtake and to seize it. He says, your prey is not some enemy, but it should be pursued with the same vigor. Pursue peace with all men and pursue sanctification without which no one sees the Lord. We chase peace with all men. We chase holiness with God. And then he gives us a warning. He says, without or apart from which, no one will see the Lord. You mean if I'm not pursuing these things with energy, if I'm not strengthening my knees and my hands, if I'm not stepping up and stepping forward, if I'm not doing these things, if I'm not doing that, I'll not see No, because God's training plan for you to see Him is for you to grow in Christ's likeness and all of this. That's all part of the process. You can't ignore all of this. And walk around thinking that somehow you're, you're in. People who are in don't ignore all of this. They embrace this. Notice the warning he says. Verse 15 to 17. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many defiled. And that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. He sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. 
for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Last verse expounds on the warning. He says, see to it, pay attention to this, see to it that no one comes up short. The picture there is the generation of God's people who after four centuries in captivity in Egypt were being led out and then they said, but it was, it was so good in Egypt, I just want to go back. And they came short of the promise God gave. Moses got close, he got to look at it and see it. But never got to step on it because he too came up short. He says, be careful, don't come up short. See to it, no one comes up short. And that no root of bitterness, that there's no root of bitterness in you. This idea, root of bitterness, it's, uh, it, it alludes to Deuteronomy 29 and verse 18. Where God warned that, hey, if you compromise with the inhabitants of the land, if you coexist with their false gods... It'll turn your heart from him and you'll become a bitter root that poisons you and, and all those who are with you. This idea of a bitter root's not just, oh, you're just going to be a cantankerous old buzzard. Be, you'll be a contagious, poisonous force in your life and in others. Think of it this day as a it's like if, if a chemical spill or an oil spill got into a water supply and now it's tainted and, and everyone who takes it, it's not just the one place where it's spilled, it's everywhere the water supply goes. Be careful, see to it, no root of bitterness. And then third, that there'd be no one like Esau. That's Isaac's eldest brother, or eldest son, excuse me, and the one to whom belonged the birthright. In the father's birthright, the, the eldest was entitled to two-thirds of the estate. It was, a, man, he got the double portion. It was, a, it was all his. And one day, in the passions of his desire, in the longing of his own feelings and, and, and his sense of need, he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He said, I'm starving. What good's an inheritance if I die of starvation? His brother's like, sure, I get, I get you. Here you go. The writer of Hebrews would say, sure, you could turn around and go back to angels or to Moses. You could go back to the law. You could go back to the Levitical code, but there'd be nothing for you. Be careful that there not be anyone like Esau among you who turns back from the hope, who falls away from, who misses it, yet close. For whatever reason, Esau could never reverse course once he forsook the blessing of his birthright. Some would say God withheld repentance from him. That's interesting. I've heard that argument before. I, I'm not sure that's what it says. In fact, I'm sure that's not what it says. Because, Peter tells us, God is not slow as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not desiring for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, including Esau. Why did Esau miss it? He wasn't willing to admit it and turn around. Yeah, he cried about his circumstances, but no, he wasn't willing to yield to God. 
See to it. No one comes up short. See to it that no root of bitterness grows up and destroys you and others. See to it that there be no immoral one like Esau who missed it because he sold out. In a word, finish. Trust the process. Don't quit. You've got more in the tank. How do you view the training program of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord? You may say it's so overwhelming, Chris, I'm just not sure. I I can't do it. I I won't do it. Or you may sit back and say, I've resolved to trust Him, to yield to His training and to work and wait on His reward. I've met people who've said to me at times, said, Chris, I... How do you expect me to trust a God who lets this kind of stuff happen? How do you expect me to yield to and believe in a God who let me go through what I went through in my life? Who let them go through what they went through? Who allowed that to happen? How can you show an allegiance to a God who would cause that? Hey, I understand the sentiment. But let me ask you the question. What's the alternative? Can you do any better? I mean, if you don't trust God, you've got to trust you. How are you doing at fixing the world's problems? How are you doing at fixing you? You can't fix you. I doubt if you can fix the world. I doubt if you could stop this evil or that evil. I doubt if you could cause this calamity not to occur. In fact, I know you can't. And when we think about the calamity, we get so focused on this that we miss out on there's more to God than just that calamity. There's the grace leading up to it. There's His presence through it. There's His promise following it. Because He disciplines with all of it. He trains us with all of it to look like Jesus. Maybe you're here and some of you today are reminded of the fact that, you, that God really is in control and He's worthy of your life. But you've, been, you've stepped back from that in days past. Today you need to reaffirm your commitment to Him. You need to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I want to, I trust you, I do. Thank you for the reminder today. You may say, I, how do I know God would even hear me after this many weeks or this many decades I've walked away from that 1 John 1 in verse 8 says if we say we don't sin by the way sin turn back from him and treat him faithlessly if we say we don't sin we lie and the truth's not in us verse 9 if we'll confess our sin God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness he is not he might be Reaffirm your love for Him. Some of you maybe for the first time, this truth that's been timeless is just connected. You thought, man, I wonder if He would have me. He came to have you. Jesus said, if you're weary and burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, my training program, on you and learn from me. 
Embrace it, the process. You've got more in the tank. You can trust it. How do I do that, Chris? The Bible says you've, you've got to admit that you're on the wrong path. Ask for forgiveness and believe God actually does provide it as he says he did. And commit to follow after him. You could do that today. Stand up. Step out. Square your shoulders. Move forward. Some of you today realizing that the only hope for those around us isn't found in better psychology or better self-awareness or better therapy. It's the fact that Jesus has been left out completely and yet he's put you in that spot to bring him into that situation. And maybe today your commitment needs to be, Lord, deploy me. Re-engage me. Let me speak on your behalf. Let me point to the light that's in you in the midst of the darkness, in every dark corner there is. Your message of how God sustained you means more to other people than a hundred sermons some pastor will preach. And he's entrusted it to you and put you in places where it matters. For when you are weak, then he is strong. If we really want Christ to be magnified, if we really want be magnified in me, you have to surrender that to him. Would you do that today? Pray with me, would you? Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.